0: Welcome back to the Wise Man's Page, the podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's *The Wise Man's Fear* page by page. This is page five hundred and fifty-eight, chapter eighty-four, the edge of the map. We continued to inch our way through the Eld. Every day began with the hope of finding traces of a trail. Every night ended with disappointment. The shine was definitely off the apple, and our group was slowly being overtaken by irritation and backbiting. Any fear Dayden once felt for me had worn paper thin, and he pushed at me constantly. He wanted to buy a bottle of brand using the mayor's purse. I refused. He thought we didn't need to keep nightly watches, merely set up a trip line. I disagreed. Every small battle I won made him resent me more, and his low grumbling steadily increased as our search wore on. It was never anything so bold as a direct confrontation, just a sporadic peppering of snide comments and sulky insubordination. On the other hand, Tempe and I were slowly moving towards something like friendship. His Aturin was becoming better and my Edemic had progressed to the point where I could actually be considered inarticulate as opposed to just confusing. I continued to mimic Tempe as he performed his dance, and he continued to ignore me. Now that I'd been doing it for a while, I recognized a hint of martial flavor to it. A slow motion with one arm gave the impression of a punch, a glacial raising of the foot, resembled a kick. My arms and legs no longer shook from the effort of moving slowly along with him. But I was still irritated by how clumsy I was. I hate nothing so much as doing a thing badly. For example, there was a portion halfway through that looked easy as breathing. Tempe turned, circling his arms, and took a small step, but whenever I tried to do the same, I inevitably found myself stumbling. I had tried a half dozen different ways of placing my feet, but nothing made any difference. And that's the end of the page.
1: I'm Nick. I'm Jordana. I'm Jeremy. I'd like to point out that I believe that this is the origin of the one perfect step that Quoth takes at the very end of the book in the epilogue. This is the Katan, of course, as we know. And at the very end of the book, during the epilogue, the last action that we see Quoth do before the repeated paragraph, the waystone was his, just as the third silence was his, is behind the tightly shuttered windows, he lifted his hands like a dancer, shifted his weight, and slowly took one single perfect step. The import of that step is established on this page. This is the beginning of his mastery of the K-10 and his beginning of beginning of his path down the Lathani with the Lathani. And uh, he begins to return to it perhaps at the very end of this book.
2: Yeah. Well, and that's an interesting idea too, because the other things that he seems to have lost are almost like more magical things. Whereas the, the Ketan, like the, the knowledge of ADM martial arts would seem to be like something that you couldn't really lose once you had it, right? It just requires you to have a certain degree of control over your your body, right? And, like, keep in good
1: shape. Yeah, I mean, I I have a black belt in Taekwondo. I cannot do Taekwondo anymore. Hmm. <laughs> so, like, you do lose it. I can tell you that for sure.
2: Hmm.
0: <laughs> it's not like riding a bike?
1: Uh, no, <laughs> not at all.
2: Huh. Fascinating. Well, then, because I guess what we've kind of been assuming is that some kind of singular catastrophe has happened to Quoth that has taken away all the things that made him special, right? You know, his, his equivalent of Taberlin's, uh, you know, key coin and candle, you know, his martial arts, his singing, his naming, his sympathy, uh, you know, his cloak all gone. And we've kind of been assuming that it's like one catastrophe that makes that happen. But what if it's not, what if much like the fall of the Roman empire, it's not like one moment of catastrophe. It's just like a slow trickle of a bunch of different factors that result in his decline
1: it could be it could be we're looking for the wrong thing Mm.
0: that that does sound more realistic
1: it does sound realistic there is a great letter i'm going to read that that has a very compelling theory about the source of his uh his disaster, but we'll get to it. If that. it did have many
2: sources, that would be kind of thematically in line with so much of what the rest of this book is about, which is that like things don't happen the way they do in stories in real life. The explanation for like a great catastrophe is not as simple as like one singular event that happened. I don't know whether that's gonna turn out to be true, but it would be an interesting like thematic link in the chain, so to speak. Hmm.
1: We're really just setting the stage again here. Or resetting. We're actually zooming out a little bit because the next chapter is an interlude.
0: How appropriate that we are zooming out on a chapter that is entitled The Edge of the Map. Mm.
1: Yeah, yeah. Which it may be is intentional. I have been nursing a theory and I will continue to do so that Rathus intentionally moves the lens of the camera back as we moved into the interlude. Now we do get dialogue in this chapter, but we are glossing over a lot of time, and I think we're meant to kind of have the the period like we're moving into a different period now. We're no longer in the early Eld. We're now in the mid Eld, and as has been highlighted on this page, the energy is now different. It's no longer everyone getting to know each other, sizing each other up. It's now we're landing in a kind of a bit more stressful, but we now trust Tempe a bit more. Quoth is has something to learn, uh, which Quoth always seems to be after. So, kind of a new status quo again.
2: Yeah, I was going to say like even if Rothfuss isn't pulling out the camera in terms of of space, he is pulling a trick in terms of time. In the in on this page, time has dilated a bit like it now feels like we're, you know, a week or two ahead of where we last left off. The significant change I think is that they're all a little bit more like familiar with each other, but they're also getting on each other's nerves a lot more because they're becoming frustrated by the seeming impossibility of their task.
0: Hmm. I mean, I feel like this is just kind of par for the course when you're doing a group project
2: yes yeah you start out with good intentions everyone's got their assignments we have a plan and then you get into it and it's actually grinding and difficult and then somebody like doesn't show up or doesn't do their work or you start to get annoyed by that one asshole chooses bubblegum and then uh, you all murder each other
1: that is how every school project went. that's right (laughs) all right i'm gonna read this letter mailbag this letter is from john from ventus uh who writes holy forking shirtball pots salutations ye pagers three I stole these from a Rothfuss fan group on Facebook, so I can't take any credit, but both of these are, our thoughts are incredibly compelling, and I will read them now. The first one is a post from a Facebook group called Pat Rothfuss's Legion of Fanatical Minions, Colonel the global group, and the poster is Rafferty Haynes Carruthers. Rafferty Haynes Carruthers posts, theory and spoilers! The reason that Kvothe as Coat is so unlike his storied self isn't because he's an unreliable narrator, per se but because Denna really does possess that magic she spoke of, where writing a thing down makes it so, and she used that and bound Kvothe's abilities by writing a scathing tale of him and mocking his abilities as lies, only loosely based in fact, making it a lie that he was ever Adam trained or possessed a ramps steel Alar, even binding his ability to slip into spinning leaf to know the names of things. Folly is not his sword, Cesura because it was rewritten to be less suited to use, maybe even meant to kill him should he raise it in defense. And then post two uh, is a commenter whose name is cut off, who writes, you've just given me a thought. Alar is belief, really strong belief that can change the behavior and properties of an object. This is tricky because obviously these are not the same coin, taking a very well-trained mind to achieve, and right cropped belief, a belief you hold to avoid incoming pain. But what about two untrained minds, a hundred, a million? The entire population of Temerant all believing a fact deep in their terrified souls, such as how seven men and women are immortal paranormal beings capable of great and terrible feats. Now imagine a traveling troop is going around collecting stories about the real history of these seven, how normal and human they were. Why, if enough people were to hear that story, the illusion would shatter, ending their immortality. Now that's something worth killing off before it starts, isn't it? I want to speak to that second one and say, this flies except that we know that Haliax wants to die. That seems to be his motivation. I was like, do we know that? I think we do. That seems to be his motivation. But what I really want to talk about, what I'm really excited about here is the idea that Denna wrote a diss track so epic that it took all of Klaus' powers away.
2: That is a cool idea. And I have a slightly modified version that I want to put out there. What if the thing that is broken in quote that has taken away his mojo, It's as simple as he's lost his belief in himself. Like, literally, he's, like, lost the ability to believe that he can do these things. He's so, like, profoundly emotionally shattered that his Alar, which we know is strong as Ramsden steel, and thus we can infer as brittle as Ramsden steel, has been shattered, and he cannot put it back together again. I can see that making it impossible not only to do Sympathy... Or to put yourself in the state of mind to invoke a name, but uh, also make it impossible to like do martial arts because you just like can't muster up the effort. I think that that I like. I mean, I like the Denai idea too, but I wonder, and I don't think they're mutually exclusive. She might have, you know, written a song that wrote her will on the world in such a way as to as to irrevocably shatter
1: Quoths Alar. Now, this is interesting to me because, Jeremy, that theory would have been my number one. And it was when I first read the book uh, that Kvothe's at Quoth's thing, Quoth's countenance was self-inflicted because largely he has lost the will to do it. He's lost his, his, as you say, his mojo until Rothfuss read chapter one of book three, because it's explicit or almost explicit that he's been desperately trying to open the box. So it seems that the box is related. The box isn't just like his stuff. The box is something important that he is desperately trying to get into in the middle of the night. And so now I no longer think that it is a mundane or as mundane as Quoth just doesn't believe in himself anymore and needs a pep talk. I do think that there's been some some juju for the mojo. I mean,
0: I posit to you, sir. Why not both? (laughs)
1: Indeed. Well,
2: and, like, I want to be clear that when I'm talking about his Alar being broken, I don't think it's just a matter of, like, both being depressed. I think, like, something profound, like, damaged his mind and his belief in himself. Like, it's not just as simple as, like, he's sad. But I also think that if my theory is true, then he could have been futilely try, And we see him, like, you know, half-heartedly try or, like, try but fail to, like, do the things he's supposed to be able to do. And they don't completely fizzle they don't like not work they just you know don't work enough to to save him right like he uh i feel like he like tries a piece of sympathy and it does like something tiny but not enough to like do anything so i think that he might well have been desperately trying to like restore his alar and maybe the key to doing so is in the box or maybe he needs his alar to open the box and get his stuff back but because he doesn't have his alar he's resorting to more conventional means to to try and get it I feel like I'm latching onto this theory a little bit because this is a trope in superhero fiction that I always love a character who is really powerful, but their power only works if they really believe in themselves or variations thereof. Like there's a character whose power is that he's extraordinarily lucky, but his luck only works. If he's like always believes that he's doing the right, like the most altruistic thing he could be doing. And if he tries to use his, his power selfishly, it won't work.
0: Hmm, weird. I feel like that power has a lot of flaws.
2: In what sense?
0: Well, like, what if you are doing something, like, righteously, but you don't think you are? And then you can't do that thing, and then you're...
2: Damn, that sounds like a plot in a pretty good story about this character.
0: Oh, fine, shush. (laughs) 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 I'm just saying it's inconvenient, okay?
2: (laughs) Well, many interesting superpowers are.
1: Is there anything else we want to talk about about that letter? I'm good. Uh no, solid. Listeners, send in your letters, send in your posts. You are the listeners that we love the most. And we'll love you the most tomorrow on another page. Of the Wing. Win. Win.